0: So, guys, we have some serious potential geopolitical issues we could discuss today, or we could do another segment on sex scandals. What should we talk about?
1: Sex. Sex. Yeah. Yeah. Sex.
0: Yep. sex. Hey, it's the Balance <laughs> of Power Roundtable. I'm Matt Robeson. This is part of the Beyond Politics podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, Blue Amp channel on YouTube, joined as always by former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, Alicia Preston. All right, you voted for it. We're going to talk about sex again after Let's our, last,
1: about sex, after
0: our <laughs> last episode last week, where we had a, a very minor, and in my view, misogynistic, patriarchy-filled sex scandal, as it were. We've got a real one. U.S. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert Alicia, I've been trying not to follow this story. I really have. I've been trying not. Could you give us like as few of the details as we can possibly stomach?
1: So Congresswoman Lauren Boebert is in a theater in Denver, Colorado to watch the musical Beetlejuice, which I myself cannot wait to see. Why is that a musical? I think it's going to be good. It's supposed to be good. But she didn't get to see the end of it because she got kicked out of the theater because she was a vaping. And the pregnant woman behind her asked her to stop and she wouldn't stop vaping. She was taking flash photography. That's a no, too. But I think the icing on the cake was when her date for the night.
0: Oh, no, don't say icing on the cake. Don't do it, Alicia.
1: Started to grope her breasts, at which point she responded in kind by groping, not his breasts, but another part of his body. And it is all on video because this, was, this is a,
0: my call, learn strategy. So, what you're telling me is that while Joe Biden is at the UN General Assembly today dealing with the Netherlands, Lauren Boebert is dealing with the Nether regions. That's essentially, that, that, that's essentially the upshot here.
1: Here's my favorite part of the developing story, however, is that people were defending her on the vaping, saying it didn't happen, on the flash photography. She's just having fun. She called herself overly eccentric. People were defending all this behavior until the revelation. Not of groping, but the man that was touching her breasts is a Democrat. Then, and uh-huh. only then,
2: that is the sin. That, that was the, that actually. Wow, that is, is the ultimate yeah. sinful collaboration. She I, I crossed, also saw crossed the aisle.
0: Oh my gosh! Yes, she crossed. It, she crossed. Aisle I also saw on the artist formerly known as Twitter that there is a conspiracy theory out there that this was all a setup. Because Lauren Boebert is worth like a sting operation, right? And so this was all a setup. It was a Democrat, and they just happened to have cameras out there. And see, that's proof that they were just trying to get Lauren Boebert, as if we don't all carry high-res cameras around in our pockets with us these days. So I, I don't know. Even
1: the fact that what's the setup? They made it so she could be seen in she a public theater her. in front of children, groping a man's penis. They set her up to do that. Who? Why? No one I, wants to see that. Let's clearly, no one wants to see this. Clearly,
2: it's the pizza basement child killing Democrats who set Lauren Boebert up to be ex- escorted or exorcised from the theater by the oh, security people. <laughs>
0: that would be amazing. The exorcist, the power of Christ, compels you. I could see her head spinning around like Linda Blair and vomiting. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. In another part of the
1: sting operation, as she be- is being escorted out, she was set up to be flipping off the ushers that were kicking her out as uh-huh. well. Because she's full of class, that king.
2: one. Wait a second. This. Let's just put this in context. There is a general loosening of standards in our society, okay? And this is not the only example of the loosening of standards in our society. Yes, it's certainly somewhat unusual behavior for theatergoers who usually are there in the theater to see a show, but clearly Lauren Boebert was there for a different kind of show of her own making. But back to the loosening standards of society, we can segue from the unfortunate behavior of Lauren Boebert to what's going on in the United States Senate. So let's never mind, okay, never mind that there are pressing issues. Never mind that Congress is threatening a shutdown. Never mind some of the other major international issues that are going on. In the United States Senate, after decades of propriety and stick up the wear, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there is now the Fetterman rule on fashion for members of the United States Senate on the Senate floor. And I can't, I, I must bring it up in the context of loosening standards in our society. Because... What
0: you're talking about is that Chuck Schumer has decided that it's okay for Senator John Fetterman to wear hoodies and cargo shorts. That's is right. What you're...
2: That's right. Gym shorts and hoodies are now de rigueur on the floor of the United States Senate. You can just imagine what that's going to look like before too long. Ted Cruz in a tie-dye t-shirt. Mitch McConnell in Birkenstocks and a bathing suit. Chuck Schumer, who says he's going to wear a suit what kind of suit will he wear you can just imagine what's going to erupt so to speak on the floor of the united states senate all these senators bad, bad. are allowed to loosen the fashion standards that the dress code that has been the hallmark of the united states senate blue suits white this shirt.
0: is paul, I think this matters I, paul i take your point oh you think this matters you want to make a yes. serious point i'm going to make a serious i, point I want to too. make
1: a serious point
0: you make the first serious point, and then i'll make the second serious point
1: and I think the Lauren Boebert situation is completely indicative of the problem we have. And it's what you mentioned facetiously, Paul. It is this relaxing of decorum, of respect that is permeating across our country, not just in Congress, not just on the Senate floor, in theaters in Colorado, in, in restaurants and bars and dining rooms where people no longer have respect for that which they are representing and i think that's a big problem look ronald reagan famously never walked into the oval office it could be five in the morning on a saturday it could be 10 o'clock at night never walked into the oval office without a suit and tie on because he respected that office so much this loosening of what he's going to wear is not just oh so what fetterman's going to wear a hoodie it's demonstrative of a bigger problem we have and that is a lack of our institutions and for the people we represent and example too
0: I will find that and I'm currently reading a book called American Moonshot about the 50s and the 60s and JFK and the American Moon program. That's what's known as a literary humble brag there. It's I just happen to be reading this book. So that made me sound like a total ass. But I'm reading this book. And one of the things that the author mentions is that John F. Kennedy, when he was elected to the Senate, felt that the level of education in the Senate was such that he could make allusions to Roman orators in his floor speeches, and that everyone would get what he was talking about. That was a level of discourse that we were dealing with. It's not that the politics of the moment were entirely elevated. There's a good reminder of this. Some of the partisan attacks going on at the time were, were pretty in place in today's politics. But there was a level of discourse and a level of decorum that was definitely higher. Then we got to the mid-2000s when Sarah Palin took the Republican Party from the party of Lincoln to the party of Winkin. And now we have lauren bobert filming her own personal version of 10 things to do in denver when you're dead drunk i think you have a point there alicia and i'm gonna go ahead and correlate it a little bit in the last 10 or 15 years think about what people are willing to say to one another online through social media versus what they would say to one another in person i know we're talking about a coarsening of behavior but i think that there's also a coarsening of What are our expectations for ourselves in public spaces? How are we expected to conduct ourselves? What's the level of dignity that we're expected to have? Forget being in elected office. How are you supposed to comport yourself publicly? How are you supposed to treat other people? That is, there's a thing there.
2: So I was on the floor of the United States Congress representing New Hampshire's second district for the State of the Union address at which I think it was Joe Wilson, if I'm not mistaken, yelled out at Barack Obama, you lie. Now, that was a singular moment. And there's a straight line that I draw from Joe Wilson, you lie to Donald Trump and Trump's the way Trump has behaved and what he has inspired and incited. So there has definitely been a coarsening of public discourse. There's been Loosening of standards of behavior, and as Alicia has said, it's clearly tied to a decline in respect for institutions. Because one of the things about the United States Senate was is that you can bemoan whether it works or not, or whether it's functional or not, and whether it's caught up to to modern times. But it has been an institution deemed worthy of respect, and part of showing the respect is you show up uh, looking like you respect the institution. So there is all that now. Maybe that's just a function of of my age. And I won't put you guys in the same category as me, but maybe it's a function of my age that I still see a role for showing respect for institutions and situations by, say, behaving in theaters because as a matter of elemental politeness, there are other people around you. Even if you don't respect the institution, at least you can respect your fellow attendees and not behave stupidly, although Bobert can hardly help herself everything she does is pretty darn stupid as we've seen but so there's that there's elemental politeness and rudeness which has been exacerbated by the social media world that has exploded all over the country now in the face of all that we've also got a generational shift going on in terms of where people think the power ought to be how power is moving the octogenarians who are running the country are not going to be around forever. Younger generations are going to take hold, and it, and it may simply be. Younger generations are less less about whether you're wearing a suit and tie. They, you know, I've, Barack Obama didn't wear a tie quite often when I saw him. But you've got a generational shift. You've got the explosion of ugliness and lack of politeness on social media. And people are now feeling free to express themselves in ways that previously would not have been acceptable.
0: I also, I'm about to attempt a bridge to a serious topic that I did wanna get into today that's more of a policy topic. And I'm not sure that this bridge is gonna be entirely successful, but I'm gonna try it anyway. What we're talking about here is coarsening of societal expectations, public discourse, public decorum. And I could see that eliciting a bit of a shrug from people listening and watching, it feels very amorphous. But there's a more serious and more sinister issue going on, which is when we talk about decorum, discourse, the way we behave to one another and in public, it's partly a function of how much we share things in common, how much we have common beliefs, common standards. Here is what is expected of us. Here is something that we all agree on. And it is in that vein that, I was really shocked to read through the profile in The Atlantic of Mitt Romney, who announced his retirement from the Senate and ostensibly his retirement from politics just this past week. This is someone who was the nominee for the presidency as a Republican 10 years ago. We are really not that far removed from him being the vanguard of one of our two major parties. And this is what he has to say. A very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. He fears that the Republican Party has been overtaken by the Trumpist MAGA authoritarian impulse that is all about power for power's sake. And I'm very much reminded of that. When I look at what's in the news, what Politico has been leading with for the past four days, which is what the Democrat leader and the Democratic leader in the House, Hakeem Jeffries, calls a civil war happening in the Republican Party in the House right now between the MAGA element that wants to shut the government down, that won't give any more money to Ukraine, that wants to vastly slash everything that the federal government does, and Kevin McCarthy, who's trying to hold on to. to the party's functionality. I do think he's genuinely trying this. My point here is we can talk about decorum and people can shrug. We can talk about how people dress, how they behave in public, whether or not it's okay to vape in a pregnant woman's face. I'm going to go with no on that. But we could also talk about the fact that one of our major parties doesn't really believe in the constitution anymore, according to that party's leader as of 10 years ago. That is a huge issue. If we don't have that, what do we have as Americans anymore? What keeps us together? What keeps us from spiraling off into an actual civil war? That's what's on my mind. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to the Matt McNeil show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil show wherever you get your podcasts.
1: First of all, and I have the greatest respect for Mitt Romney, and I think his parting words should be something all Republicans should heed in some capacity. I think we really have to realize that the MAGA wing of the Republican Party aren't actually Republicans. It started to bug me that we call them Republicans. Republicans are people who believe in a set of ideals, not a cult of personality. Mitt Romney, by every standard, is is the standard bearer for Republicanism, what he believes in, his conservative values. And yet- 35% 35% of the Republican Party, those registers of the Republican Party, call him a traitor because he voted to impeach Donald Trump or to convict Donald Trump. And I'm no longer calling the MAGA wing Republicans because they don't believe in what we believe in. They believe in a man. They worship a man. They, they literally had a convention a few years back where they had a golden statue of him. And as a person who is familiar with that. That turned out, that out well the, for
0: the Israelites.
1: It's just, it, it's Mind boggling to me, but I'm no longer going to call them Republicans because Republicans have to believe in something. It's not just the letter next to your name. And we lost.
0: You're saying they've gone full. Big Lebowski here. They're yeah. nihilists.
1: We believe in nothing, Lebowski. They believe in nothing except Donald Trump and what he says. He could say anything, and they'll believe in it. And look, he said a lot of things that are so against the Republican ideals. He's dismissed the Constitution numerous times, to your point. He also thought an internet tax might be a good idea. We've been fighting that for a decade. He wanted
0: to terminate the Constitution.
1: That was it, terminate the Constitution. Terminate the Constitution. terminate the Constitution.
2: He is the And
1: they're not Republicans. They don't believe what we believe in. Republicans believe in the Constitution. We've been beating that drum on the Second Amendment, on the First Amendment, on the Fifth Amendment, on the Tenth Amendment for years and years. And I'm sticking with it. And Mitt Romney's right about a faction of the Republican Party for which they are not truly. So
2: there is me. a civil war going on with the Republican Party how does it end where does it end where does it go what does it mean for us in the 2024 presidential election what does it mean for us in terms of the functioning of our american democracy or representative democracy or representative republic or whatever it is we've got that what does it mean if the I, if one party is at war within itself and controlled by a, a wing who don't believe in the fundamentals of our democracy, where does it leave us? And how, how? what are you supposed to do about it?
0: Can I give you the scary version? In the early 1990s classic TV skit show, In Living Color, they did a little parody of Southerners- Love that show. 150 years later, and they're still revolting. And ha, huh, except it's true. When you listen to modern MAGA language, It's very much about the issues that we were fighting the Civil War about, right? It's about nullification, right? That's the 10th Amendment fight. It's about the ability of states to just tell the federal government to go pound sand. That's functionally what Alabama has done to the federal government when they were ordered by federal courts to ungerrymander their congressional map. And they basically said, no, that's cute. We're just going to do whatever the hell we want. And you see it very much in the invocation of constitutional language, not allowing Donald Trump to appear on the ballot. Now that issue, who knows where that will go, but that is straight out of the 14th Amendment saying that if you've led an insurrection, you really should not be able to be qualified for federal office. We're fighting the same fights. And my point is, I'm not so sure I agree with you, Alicia, that this is all just about a cult of personality. Let me invert the question a little bit. After Donald Trump dies, will MAGAism be over? And my fear is that the answer is no, that there is an impulse here that clearly has existed for a long time. And much as the joke says, 150 years after the Civil War, we're still fighting the same set of issues in this country. I am fearful that 150 years from now, we're still gonna be fighting this impulse. What's dangerous about this moment now is that it is a leveraged takeover of the republican party i was saying to the usa today columnist rex hupke on this show last week that in 2016 i could forgive my republican friends for voting for donald trump because polling shows that the majority of americans and the majority of republicans saw him as a moderate they thought he was going to be reformed once he was in office i could almost squint and forgive my republican friends for voting for him in 2020 totally, not really, but I could see it. I could see it. He's the nominee of your party and you could almost get there. But we're on the cusp of the Republican Party nominating him for a third straight time to be their avatar, to be their standard bearer, to be the embodiment of what they stand for. And I no longer think if this happens, when and if this happens in six months, I no longer think you can say, oh, the MAGA element is a minority of the Republican Party at that it point? Is, even
1: if they nominate him, because if they nominate the race, him
0: for if they nominate him for a third time, I don't know how anyone can argue that this is not what the Republican Party stands for. Three times they will because have said, it's not
1: because he can win with thirty two percent of the vote. If thirty two percent of the vote means that's what Republicans stand for, no, that means sixty eight percent stand for something else. I and mean, yet. He very yet, well could get the nomination, but you guys, you guys are both missing.
2: You, you guys are both missing a very important point. Uh, back to where we started this really erudite and impressively intellectual discussion about the loosening of standards. About just the think, nether regions. No, just think about what it means for a presidential candidate to bring a new fashion perspective, either prison pinstripes or orange jumpsuit to the debate stage. Can you I, I can see the debate. There is Trump in his orange jumpsuit with shackles on his wrists and his ankles being escorted onto the debate stage, surrounded by prison guards for his debate with whoever the Democratic nominee is. Now, that is a fashion statement in and of itself that will change, I think, America forever.
1: Paul oh, is fantasizing again.
2: you think you think that's a fantasy. He's facing ninety one felony counts, and lots of Republicans are saying he's still going to be their nominee if convicted. So i'm all I'm saying is the orange jump the the orange jumpsuit and shackles look is it could be the new normal. And what does that say about our democratic institutions?
0: Look, I, I want to just go back to the football coach Bill Parcells, who famously said, You are what your record says you are. And I'm sorry, we're going to disagree about this at a certain point. And that point is when you nominate Donald Trump for a third time to be your presidential candidate, you are what your record says you are. You can no longer, this This is not what Republican, this is not what the Republican party stands for. It is, they will back him. The Republican party will back him. And look, if what you're arguing is the majority of Republicans don't believe in this, then they need to actually have the civil war. They need to actually secede.
1: There's a, a better sports analogy, and that is the one that I don't know who said it. My husband says it all the time. I don't know if someone famous did. And that is that the scoreline didn't tell the story. And that's a far more accurate application of a football or, or in this case, it's European football, but sport analogy. Then the Bill Parcells quote, because the scoreline. If he gets nominated, and I presume as of today he will, I'm hoping that changes. That's a scoreline that doesn't tell the story.
0: Again, there's no way at this point in my mind. Once that happens, we're presuming here. Once that happens, I think there's there is no longer any way for people to go on calling themselves Republicans. And not being associated with that. There's just, there is no way. He is the standard bearer of your party. Your party will have decided this is what we are for the third straight time. This anti-constitutional and American. So
1: we can move on, but we're not going to agree. When a minority of a party nominates somebody, and that's how the system works, whether I like it or not, it's not, it it's whomever has the most. And when Donald Trump gets more votes than any other individual, but the vast majority of Republicans vote for someone other than Donald Trump, it's not the party of Donald Trump. That's just how the system works.
2: Let me just bring something to your attention, Alicia. I I really respect your passionate defense of traditional Republican values. It would be great for America if that's what we were dealing with. We recently had on the show a, a former candidate a Republican candidate for the United States Senate in New Hampshire, Corky Messner, an attorney of long-time standing, endorsed by Donald Trump, but leading the charge in New Hampshire to disqualify Trump from the, from appearing on the ballot because of the Clause 3 of, Para, of uh, Amendment 14, the Insurrection Clause. I mean, he's the guy who brought it in because, as he said, he's a defender of the Constitution. He's an advocate for the Constitution. So here's somebody who I think Conservatives understand, traditional Republicans would admire a former U.S. Senate candidate in in New Hampshire. And he said that even though he was an advocate for the Constitution and dropped the issue to the fore in New Hampshire, if Donald Trump was the presidential nominee of the party, he would support Donald Trump as for president of the United States, despite everything that he had told us about his support for the Constitution and his effort to see Donald Trump removed from the ballot. The only dividing line he saw was, if Trump is convicted, he said if Trump is convicted, that gave him sufficient pause, he would then not be a supporter of Trump. His stance, which elevates being a Republican over the Constitution that he was advocating for, suggests to me that As passionate as your defense is of the traditional values of the Republican Party and your sense that it is only a minority who support Trump, the fact that these are all Republicans, you can say they're not really, but they're all Republicans, and the fact that Trump is flying the Republican banner means that your party has gone the way of Trump. And Corky Mesner's stance is the illustration of exactly why. If there's an R, that's fine. If it's Trump who's the R, that's fine, too. I'm so,
1: pretty sure that, first of all, Corky Messner has political aspirations. He's not done yet. And everyone running as a Republican in every race everywhere says, I'll support Donald Trump if he's the nominee. I don't think they should say that. I think they're missing the boat on a lot of things. What does discussed. that
2: say okay. about your argument? It says they, the minority... they want. Let's
0: take a break. We'll be right back.
1: It says they want to win because you can't win a general election in a state like New Hampshire, where the Republicans and Democrats are about equal, and the largest group is 40-something percent independent, you cannot win a general election if the Trump people won't vote for you. Now, I don't think that's right. I don't think you should abandon your ideals because and your belief system because you want to win a race. Democrats do it. Republicans do it. Everyone does it. People who want power do this constantly, and it drives me insane. So I don't support the concept, but it is a political calculation that in a state like New Hampshire, we're talking about, you cannot win a general election if you lose that 20 something percent of people that will automatically vote against you if you don't worship Trump. That's a political calculation.
0: I would suggest this, and we can move on. I would suggest that when and if, when Donald Trump is the nominee, it will be incumbent on Republicans if they really are against him and if they really understand that his authoritarian impulse, his anti-constitutional stance, the fact that his reelection would likely mean the end of the country as we know it. It is incumbent on those Republicans to protest with their votes. Do they have to declare, I'm no longer a Republican for all time? I, I don't really give a shit about that. But it is incumbent on them to massively punish the Republican Party. By the way, I'm not saying this out of interest as a member of the Democratic Party. Because I actually don't think that a massive landslide for the Democrats would be necessarily an unfettered good thing. I think any party that's completely unrestrained by a minority party is a bad thing. I I think any group in America, any substantial group of Americans that feels unrepresented is a bad thing and a recipe for trouble. So I'm not looking for a massive landslide for Democrats so that they can implement whatever the heck they want. But I'm telling you, that will be the moment of choosing for Republicans and that the best thing that probably could happen for the Republican Party when they nominate Donald Trump is for Republicans to punish their leadership of their party at the ballot box with a horrifying loss, with a massive loss. And that's the only way that they're going to break free and break through. I think that's
1: going to happen. Excuse me, whether it's Republicans or independents or undeclared, I think if Donald Trump is the nominee, what we will see is Donald Trump will not get reelected. It is impossible. And when I see these presidential candidates sucking up to him and and not doing their own thing, it it boggles my mind because Don or, or members of Congress supporting him. He cannot win a general election against Joe Biden. It's not going to happen in a million years. And what will further happen is Trump sycophants who are running for Congress and Senate in swing states are going to lose as well. And so those swing states are also going to go Democrat. So all these Republicans fawning over Donald Trump and those that worship Donald Trump need to understand you are willingly handing control of the United States Senate, the United States Congress, and the White House to a party that you don't think is good for this country. That's what they're doing. I can't explain it, but that is what will happen. And we will have our asses handed to us in 2024 if Donald Trump and his worshipers are down ballot from him.
0: Let's do a few more related quick hits on topics in the news. I want to talk about the Ukraine aspect of this. That same group in the House, let's call them the MAGA Republicans, and we can hold aside the question of whether they're exercising a leveraged buyout, and they're all by default MAGA Republicans these days, are standing against any further Ukraine support Uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky is in New York for the U.N. General Assembly today. President Joe Biden is there as well. They are jointly making the case to the world to stand up with and for Ukraine and they're trying desperately and credit to Mitch McConnell on this one. Mitch McConnell is trying desperately to keep Republicans on board with aiding Ukraine. Where are we going with this? Is Are we gonna end up with some funding for Ukraine? Paul, what's your sense?
2: Yes, we'll end up funding Ukraine. Look, the bottom line is this is the front line in the global stand against authoritarianism uh, and the use of force instead of uh, reason to control global aspirations. There is no choice for America and the United States but to stand firm and stand with Ukraine against this hell, brutal invasion by Vladimir Putin. I don't understand the Republican stance on this. I It boggles my mind that the party that stood for a strong defense and American values is unwilling unwilling to do what's necessary. I mean, there was World War II, and now there's this. Uh,
0: Alicia, I know. You yeah. think, yeah, you think they're going to, you think that this faction in the Republican party, this one is one where it is actually a faction. This is not the I'm default saying, position.
1: Paul's painting like Republicans, no, the vast majority of Republicans in Congress and in the streets of America support Ukraine and support funding Ukraine. That That is just a fact. There is a small faction, but the number is tight enough that they're making a lot of noise. Look, we're going to give Ukraine the funding it needs that we can afford that should be given. We're asking the rest of the industrialized world to help out with that as well many are some aren't and we will end up doing the right thing at the end of the day
0: fair enough let's touch on another international issue there was a prisoner trade that also freed up six billion dollar it's complicated it's not directly going to be accessible to iran but there, there are some frozen funds that they will be able to use for essential needs this was all part of a swap that is bringing home five americans who were held hostage in iran Last year, it's actually over a year now, we had on this show Jason Rezaian, the former Washington Post reporter who was held hostage in Iran, talking about a documentary that um, he had helped produce about Ahmad Shargi, an American citizen who was being held hostage in Iran. He's one of the five Americans who have been released. Not all Americans held hostage there are being released. Obviously the politics of this are very fraught and very sensitive. Anytime you get engaged in a prisoner swap in releasing funds to Iran, it falls into the partisan politics vortex. And it's complicated people see it as potentially if you give a mouse a cookie they're going to demand a glass of milk so there are issues here i'm not saying that this is a clear-cut thing alicia what was your reaction to this
1: you know i'm a little conflicted the human in me is happy they're home the images of them seeing their children and their wives and their partners or whatnot and seeing them back on American soil the human in me is very pleased with what happened I, I get what you just said the cooking in the milk it is a little dangerous we're dealing with a terrorist regime they're going to take more they're going to do more the other factor is we tend to give more than we ever get we gave them five prisoners they gave us five prisoners plus we unfroze six billion dollars in assets that was being held in South Korea with Brittany Griner we got Brittany Griner back and we gave him the merchant of death and there just seems to be we're always giving a little more than we're taking that being said again I'm glad they're home they're Americans America's the greatest country On Earth. One of the reasons is we're willing to go get our people and bring them home and protect them. And that is of high value. A lot of countries certainly don't work that way. I see both sides to an extent and I don't know what the answer is. People out there going, America does not negotiate with terrorists. Of course we do. We negotiate with terrorist regimes all the time. This isn't a 1990s Harrison Ford film. This is foreign diplomacy. That's a silly comment. And people actually believe that's American foreign policy and forget that it's from the president, Marshall, I think was his name, in the movie Air Force One is where that policy was dictated, not an actual president of the United States. So it's hard. It's calm. I'm glad I'm not the person that has to make these decisions.
2: So I was disappointed to hear Mitch McConnell whining about it on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Hostage negotiations and bringing Americans home should be totally nonpartisan. It should be a a bipartisan, nonpartisan effort. I heard an interview with the chief negotiator this morning who said that the Biden administration had kept Congress and all of Congress apprised of what was happening all the way along that the vast majority of members, certainly of Congress, supported this, this deal. He pointed out that the money was, what it meant was that the money was moved from one account to another more restrictive account where every penny can be accounted for. And it's only to be used for humanitarian purposes. So that's a, it's a, it's just simply stupid politics for a McConnell to whine about that. We've brought Americans home. That is, it should be a day of celebration for the entire country, certainly for the people who have been brought home. It gives hope to those who are still wrongly detained around the world. The signal is we will bring our people home.
0: I'm reminded of what Yitzhak Rabin, the former prime minister of Israel, said in striking a deal with the PLO. You don't make peace with friends, you make peace with unsavory enemies. And I think this is one of those cases. International negotiations, diplomacy. It it, it is not black and white. Right now, we are engaged in diplomacy with Saudi Arabia. We are being uncomfortably cozy with Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, responsible for the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi and many other atrocities in Saudi Arabia. But that is the nature of what we're dealing with here. We have to have a relationship with Saudi Arabia because they're a hedge against Iran, which is equally bad, if not worse. And we have to worry about our economy. We have to worry about international oil prices. We have to worry about the geopolitics of the region. We have to worry about our ally, Israel. These things are immensely complicated and i think to try to boil them down to partisan politics of someone is soft on this or to nitpick these things are really hard i don't think i don't think any of us are equipped to really dive into the minutia of this was it the optimal deal we could have gotten i don't know but i'm supportive of the idea this seems like reasonably straightforward swap It's being characterized as a confidence building measure that may lead to further prisoner exchanges, further reduction of tensions, maybe a little bit of steering Iran back in a more constructive direction, which would certainly be a good thing. So I guess I finally land on what Alicia said, which is I rejoice at Americans being, I think, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I'd love to talk about Donald Trump's derailing and derailed and unhinged Sunday talk show interview. can't um, talk
1: um, about how you liberal Jews are, you two, you liberal Jews, you're destroying America.
0: Oh, okay. We can talk about that. Do you <laughs> want for our listeners who just hit the rewind button? Wait, what, what, what? Alicia's evil. This is something we don't expect. We did not know all this time that you were evil. You're quoting Donald Trump. I am, I am. I
1: am
2: Dr. Evil according to Trump. I'm one of those liberal Jews. Do you want to just
0: quickly explain why we're evil?
2: Because apparently we don't support Donald Trump and that makes sense.
0: What are we talking about here for people who may not have heard about this? And a message, by Is,
2: the way. The message <laughs> to Jews was, you guys got to do better. You liberal Jews, you're destroying America. You're not, you don't stand behind Netanyahu enough. You don't support me the way I'd like you to. You liberal Jews are therefore destroying America. By the way, Happy New Year. <laughs>
1: That's basically what it was, yeah. yeah.
2: Thank you, Donald. I appreciate it. And You wish
1: you a Happy New Year, guys. Come on. Be gracious.
2: I think of JFK and I used to use this in speeches. If By liberal, you mean? Happy New Year, Matt. Happy New Year, Alicia. Happy Um, New Year. And Happy New Year, Donald Trump. Happy
0: New Year, Donald
2: Trump. And may
0: this be (laughs) the final year of your freedom. And on that happy note, let's wrap it up for Paul and Alicia and Matt Robinson. We will see you next time.